You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Rebecca Carroll. This program originally aired in 2021. This is Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. I'm Peter Biello. Rebecca Carroll grew up in Warner, New Hampshire, a black child of mixed race adopted into a white family. She wrote about her experiences in her new memoir, Surviving the White Gaze. I started our conversation by asking Rebecca Carroll what she would define as the white gaze. So this is a tough question, not in that I don't know the answer, in that I feel a kind of way about having to answer the question, right? Which is that the white gaze is the default. The white gaze is the standard of beauty. The white gaze is the standard of excellence. The white gaze is the literary canon that we live in. The white gaze is what decided and has decided that only that which is adjacent to whiteness is valuable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... I was raised in that, whether intentioned or not intentioned, in that kind of default mode of whatever we see through the white lens is what you will see and what you will accept about yourself. Okay. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. Getting apart away from the idea that it's a a literal gaze, uh, it is that, but it does also more than that. It's it's a set of expectations uh, and, and, and... it takes work on on the part of white people, I think, to get a, get away from seeing things with themselves at the center. Um, and your experience, the, I mean, the easiest way is just to say it's the default. Mm-hmm. It is the default. If you look industry wide, um, to in any area of industry, the standard of excellence, the the standard of beauty, the uh, you know mainstream media or whatever that is, it's always gauged by a, a, a set of white standards. Mm-hmm. So when you were a child growing up in New Hampshire, I imagine the white gaze was a thing you felt before you had a name to give it. Is that true? Did you, did you feel it before you knew what it really was? Um, I think I, like many, many things, um, in my childhood and teens and early 20s, it was a sort of an ongoing process of finding the language for what I was feeling. Um, and so when I experienced racism as a, you know, as a 10 year old, I didn't know that it was racism because I didn't have a word for it. Nobody had talked to me a, about it. I just thought when my teacher said, you're very pretty for a black girl, that she was being snooty and condescending, which she was that also. Um, but but when I realized it was racism was when I was writing this book, which is that pretty for a black girl was the outfacing racism of it that I took with me into my twenties. What I internalized, and this is the white gaze was what she said after that, which is that most black girls are very ugly. Most black girls are unattractive. And she said it as if she was talking about buying a loaf of bread, you know, like it wasn't anything at all. And that's the part that I internalized. That is the white gaze. But I didn't know that. I didn't know. I didn't even know what the white gaze was until I heard Toni Morrison talking about it um, many, many, many years later. Mm -hmm. So when you were growing up in Warner, New Hampshire, you were um, Mm -hmm. growing up in a white family. And Mm -hmm. in, in the book, it does not seem like they spoke much, if at all, about 
um, race and, and the difference between you and the rest of the people in the community. Uh, to what extent did they, they address it? And what things do you feel like you wish they had said? Well, I think my mom, who, um, if you have read the book, know is pure of heart and um, pure of love. And I think was conscious of my blackness in a way that she that that she could make space for in her mind as an artist. And so she made me a black doll because she couldn't find any dolls. She found me a black dance teacher, um, or she didn't find it. But, you know, it turns out that there was a black dance teacher and 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 she enrolled me in the classes. And um, but she didn't know how to take care of my skin or my hair. Um, and the effort to sort of engage with my blackness was, vague because I don't think she had the tools. She said this, she has said this since, you know, the tools, but I also don't believe it's about tools. I believe it's about sort of broadening your, the way that you take in the world and the way that you observe and listen to things. So sort of an ongoing mantra was when I started to push back against why they adopted me was, you know, it was 1969, early 70s, Martin Luther King, you know, civil rights, like we were going in a good direction in terms of race, but they didn't go any further with that direction. They didn't go any further with what Martin Luther King was saying. And it's the same thing with the doll and with the dance teacher. It's like, unless there is a consistent level of engagement about that blackness or what that represents, then it, then it doesn't find its way into, it didn't find its way into my life and my brain and my instinct. So was there a point in your early childhood when you were trying to figure it out uh, without your parents' help? Or did, you, did it have to wait until college when you actually did start hanging out with a, a lot more people of color? Well, I think, you know, as I write in the book, you know, after I had a black dance teacher and I was sort of like, wait a minute, What's going, on? what's going on here? Because I had only previously seen Easy Reader on on Electric Company, um, and again, and this is really really important, um, particularly for white adoptive parents of black children. It's like the exposure is one thing, the engagement is another, right? And it's, it, you can think about it in terms of like diversity and inclusion initiatives. It's like it's not enough to make the hire; you have to engage with the subsequent culture and and what that will mean for that for that person or that hire. And so, you know, I wrote my first essay when I was six years old and said, you know, I am a black child. I, nobody had said that. I said that um, and wrote that. And so I, I clearly began thinking about my identity early on. But the messages that I received um, from my parents and from 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 the folks in town, which was that I was, you know, certainly special and I was precocious and I was, um, and I loved fashion and I loved to be, you know, present and um, social. Um, and so when I was small and younger, my blackness was sort of irrelevant to what to sort of my larger than life personality. It wasn't until you know my fifth grade teacher and then middle school that I started to sort of. Um, have these experiences where I, I didn't really, I was out of practice. I didn't, I didn't know what, what, what was happening. So on top of being like going through adolescence and getting my period and thinking about boys and I had this thing, this sort of weird limb, ghost limb that I had to kind of try to figure out. Rebecca Carroll, uh, you 
describe a few incidents uh, of racism directed at you, starting with the ones you've already mentioned, and and then they continue throughout your life. Did they change as you got older and got taller and became a woman? Did it? Did it? <laughs> <laughs> did they? Did they? Did the what, racism get different? Did yeah, the flavor did, of racism get different? Well, it seems like that 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 woman who said something like, "Oh, you know, you're you're pretty for a black girl," like she was, she was just kind of tossing off something kind of thoughtlessly. Mm-hmm. Did it become? in any way more targeted or, or um, group-based? Like, were people ganging up on you? Was it, was it different in any way as you grew up? No, I think what changed is my own evolution. Um, and that's really what this book is. It's not just about surviving, it's about becoming. Um, but, I, but I think about, you know, there's an incident um, in the book about after I'd met my birth mother and I was 11 years old and I was at a bar um, and a, and an older white man approached me and, and came on to me and, um, I was 11 years old and, and I would not have, it would not have occurred to me then or 10 years later or 10 years after that until I actually had evolved and read and been around black folks and black women who could say to me, black girls are completely adultified, sexualized, exotified. Like I just felt like in that situation, this was really uncomfortable. I felt really upset. I felt really targeted, but I didn't know why. And so the levels of racism, the micro macro levels of racism have have much more been about my ability to sort of confront them and understand the depths from which they come. Looking back, do you feel like growing up in New Hampshire really poorly equipped you to, to be in a more diverse place? Or I guess I should say, how did it feel to be in a place that was more diverse after leaving New Hampshire? I, I resist the idea of being equipped or, you know, ill-equipped or better equipped or because it was so much about an evolution. And I also I really believe that, you know, when people ask me about how to become racially conversant or to think about racial equality or, you know, it's not just about legislature or laws or or initiatives or anti-racism books it's really about evolving your sense of self and your place in the world and your relationship to other people's place in the world um i don't feel like i was ill-equipped to be in diverse environments i feel like i was ill-equipped to understand my impact and my power and my agency uh, as a black woman until i found that myself. Is that to say that And through other black folks. Is that to say that you didn't feel like you had as much agency? I felt like I was I I felt like I was trying to stay above water. I felt like I was trying um to compete in in a really rigged um competition, you know, like it was a extremely clique heavy classist, you know, elitist rich white environment that I was growing up in. And, you know, my parents were artists, so we were, we didn't have any money and I was adopted. And it was sort of like, it was just a, it was like, I didn't have a lot of arrows in my quiver. I often reflect on that though, too, which is I was so strategic at such a young age and without having had someone say to me, a black parent say to me, you have to be twice as good. You have to work twice as hard. I did it anyway, and I resented it, and I resented it. And and so I think that that sort of came across to some people as entitlement in a way that my white peers would never have been judged. 
but I really was mostly trying to stay above water and to try to get out of Warner, get out of New Hampshire. Can you give us a specific example of when you, you had to try twice as hard to succeed? I guess I, I it's hard to um, differentiate between trying hard to succeed and actually just trying to live, right? So all of the examples for me of of racism, you know, where my my um, my friend, my good friend of years, his father forbid him to take me to the prom. So, and I write in the book, like, whose parents forbid their kid from going to the prom? Um, but in, in I felt in that moment that I had, I certainly would have to be twice as anything, even to get into the prom, right? And as it turned out, I was still stuck in the car when he went into his house to go get his wallet. You know what I mean? So that was heartbreaking. I got to say, that was really... there. Were, yeah. So there was, so I, I guess I would say that trying twice as hard isn't, isn't um, always, doesn't always translate into um, a Shonda Rhimes character. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not always that cut and dry. It's like, wow, I'm going to have to try to... Um, I'm going to have to try to rest my emotions here. I'm going to have to rebuild my 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 sense of self and my confidence, whatever confidence I have. Um, and that, I think, is actually quite specific to Black women in America. It's like we sort of have this this um, th- this double this helix of 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 gender and race, and and the expectation is that we will find some kind of deep reserve of endurance. That is the expectation. And so from a very early age for me, without anybody having said that, I had I certainly had to do that because of having been a black girl and then a black woman. This is Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. And you're listening to my conversation with Rebecca Carroll, recorded earlier this month via live stream. I'm Peter Biello. More after a break. This is NHPR. This is Writers on a New England Stage. I'm Peter Biello. Earlier this month, I spoke with author and cultural critic Rebecca Carroll, whose new memoir, Surviving the White Gaze, offers a look at what it's like to grow up black in New Hampshire. Let's return to that conversation. I want to ask you a little bit about your your birth mother because she's such a central figure in this book. I did want to ask what you were, uh, as a child, if you remember this, what what you were hoping to get from a relationship with your mother and and what you feel like you, you actually got. That's a great question. Um, and I think because I was so young, I just wanted to love her and I wanted her to love me like immediately. <laughs> that was my expectation. Um, and, and I didn't take into account that she would have scars and pain and, and anguish and, you know, around meeting this child she gave away. I didn't take that into account at all. And, and in my mind, you know, what I knew was that she had been a teen um, mother and was not in a position to raise her child. And and so gave me to folks she thought would be better equipped to do that. And, you know, all I thought was, oh, it's going to be so fun and great to meet her. And I bet she's beautiful and smart and cool and this and that. And she was all those things when we met. Um, so I think what I was what I was looking for was for her to be um, both grateful uh, and proud Um that she had made a smart choice, that I had come out okay, um, and that we now had this opportunity to be in each other's lives. What I ended up getting was a sort of consistent message that who I was is not who I would have been had she kept me. Who might you have been in, in her imagination? 
I think it's tough to know. I think it's tough to know. I think if I if I knew the answer, I would have done it. And what about your your birth father? Uh, she uh, knew who he was, and she gave you a photograph of him. Uh, what do you think uh, it would have brought to your life if you had had uh, your your black father in your life sooner? Well, there's no one answer to that um, because blackness is larger than one or two or three people. Um, but I think that he would have given me a sense of lineage and um, a sort of ancestral resonance and um, and tangibility. Um, you know, we met and we we met two or three times, and he was not who I thought he would be. I was not prepared for to, for him in the same way that my parents were not prepared for me, which is to say that I had still internalized the white gaze. I expected him to be a certain kind of black man and black father. And I wanted him to show up and look like Easy Reader and look like this, you know, sharp dressed uh, black man who was socially agile. And, you know, when we met, he, he wasn't well, he was homeless. He was just relieved to a point that made me feel uncomfortable. He was relieved to see me in a way that felt so burdensome and I, and I regret it to my core, but I wasn't prepared for him. And I, you know, as I write in the book, I'm, I'm deeply sorrowful that I wasn't able to return to him when I, after I was able to let go of the white gaze. What about friends? When you started to make uh, black friends, what did they teach you that you, you hadn't been able to get from your friends in Warner when you were growing up? So again, I mean, I, I, I resist the framework of teaching or tools or practice. Um, there was an ease of proximity there was um, less explaining, less discomfort. And it wasn't always easy. There was certainly a lot of sort of pushback when I was younger about, you know, talking like a, uh, like a white person or thinking that I was, you know, white. Um, and I write about that in the book. But there was an ease and a, and a comfort that I knew that I had longed for. And it sh that's how it showed up, right? That I had had this kind of yearning when I was growing up. And then when I had black friends and, and black community, it was visceral, actually. You felt comfortable in ways that you hadn't felt comfortable. Is that the idea? I think comfortable is like too easy a word. It was more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. I felt it felt transcendent, but it also felt scary. Right. And I write about this early on after I met my dance teacher, which is that I thought I was black. And when I saw her and met her and was around her, I wanted to be black, but I also knew that being that would require giving something else up. And what that was, was, was the sort of shepherding of whiteness. And so, you know, there, there are, there are several uh, incidents and anecdotes throughout the book where, you know, I see a breakdancing group in, in the sixth or seventh grade. And I knew, even though I made this connection with this boy that I would have to sacrifice the sort of um, the friends and the popularity that I had accrued at that point um, and, you know, other places where I knew that if I were to survive and had to survive in middle school and high school, that I had to 
still stay somehow hooked into the white gaze and the uh, a standard uh, of of whiteness. We have a question about where you went to college. You started at UNH. Uh, I did. The, the person is asking, uh, why did you choose that school, and and how do you feel about those years and experiences now? <laughs> well, I mean, I see that UNH is is a partner of yours, and so I don't want to uh, offend. But um, I went to UNH because my parents uh, couldn't afford to send me anywhere else. And quite frankly, my grades were not amazing. Um, and what I feel about it is, you know, it, it, there were 10,000 students um, on campus in 1987, the fall of 1987, and 33 of them were black. Um, that, I mean, let me repeat that. 10,000 students and 33 of them were black. So it was very much a replication of the experience I had had growing up. I resented that. Um, but I did have a black professor who was extraordinary and introduced me to um, black writers and literature. And I, and I found a writing voice and, um, and started a black student union, which I had no idea what I was doing. But at the same time, it, it was, it was a, an empowering experience. So I was there for three semesters. And then I transferred to Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, where I ultimately graduated. And how would you compare your experiences at those schools? Oh, vastly different. I mean, UNH had the basic general requirement courses and the majors and the this and the that. And Hampshire is very much like, what do you want to do? <laughs> how do you want to do it? Um, and and so that was that I was much more suited for me because I was certainly, you know, driven and ambitious about my own intellect. But I wanted to do it the way I wanted to do it. Um, and so, and it was a much, much smaller, obviously, and a very active and creative and um, uh, student body of color. And, um, and I was involved with that and um, had a, you know, a very good experience there. Mm -hmm. Was it in college when you decided you wanted to pursue writing as a, as your profession? No, mm. <laughs> um, I don't feel like I've ever chosen to pursue it as my profession. I think it's what I do. It's what I am. I've always written. I, you know, I think of myself as a collagist, as a curator, as a producer in terms of my professional life. It, but it but it sort of it spans across different mediums. Um, I'm a storyteller. Uh, and that has taken form in journalism that has taken form in um in interview-based sort of uh, oral storytelling, um, in in radio and soon to be film and TV, and so I I think I have always written, and that is just who I am. I definitely want to ask you more about the television aspect of what's to come from your memoir, mm -hmm. but but I did want to stop you, uh, uh, or rather, get your thoughts on uh, Toni Morrison. Uh, because you, you wrote in The Atlantic that she was an inspiration for, for this book. In what way? Why Toni Morrison? Inspiration seems like too, actually too small a word, too, not enough. Um, when I read The Bluest Eye and then Sula and then Song of Solomon, um, I felt like the sky cracked open and an ancestor came down and grabbed my hand, right? And said, you're all right, you're gonna be okay. Um, and I think it's not just because she wrote th these beautiful stories, but because she's a beautiful writer, right? It's like in this moment, 
you know, just to give it some framework and contextualize in this moment of sort of racial reckoning, everyone's like, you know, not everyone, white folks, what should I do? How can, what should I read? Da, 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 you know, and there's, and there's lots and lots of very good anti-racist books and this and that, but read Toni Morrison and not because you should, but because she's an amazing writer. And that I think is, is one of the things that I, that, that I needed to know growing up, which is that you don't read black writers or black literature or you look at black art or listen to black music because you should or because you're learning about blackness. You do it because you are being exposed to tremendous craft and talent and skill and resilience. Toni Morrison, I think she's she's un, incomparable. I just I think that the way that she approached the world, the way that she approached her writing, her black womanness, the resolute faith in language, her absolute joy in community and her own blackness, just my North Star. Let's talk about your podcast for a minute. Come through. Oh, sure. That was um just a just a wonderful series of conversations. I was listening back now after the election, hearing so many people think about how things would be during that last election. What made you want to host conversations of that kind? So this sort of speaks a little bit to your question about pursuing a career as a writer. Really at the core of everything that I do is curiosity and engagement and conversations. And I think what why I wanted to do that podcast, particularly last year, is because we hear a lot about having difficult conversations. And what that means to a lot of people is saying that we're going to have difficult conversations and or having a difficult conversation and then being like, okay, I'm good. What I like to do is have the difficult conversation and then sit in that difficulty because that's the only place and way that the, any kind of evolution of thinking is going to happen. If you sit in that moment of, oof, this feels terrible, right? And you're with someone, you know, I mean, it's like getting high for the first time, right? <laughs> you want to be with somebody safe, right? You want to be with someone who is not going to be like, I I'm out. Um, right. Because you're because you're you're experiencing something that feels weird. And, and for me personally, terrible. That was my own first experience getting high. Um, that's a different story. But my point is, is that I want people to feel their brain changing. I want people to feel that they can, they can go into a, a, another level. And, th and that sounds a little woo woo, but, but the, the real thing is Let's not just say we're having difficult conversations. Let's sit in them and change how we think. That reminds me of one of the moments in your podcast when you were speaking with uh, Robin D'Angelo uh, of White Fragility, who was saying that, you know, she would she would talk with with groups of of white people about um, issues of race and racism at their workplace, for example, and then they would say, "I'm going to reflect on that." And mm -hmm. that's and, right. But then she was also saying, "Okay, well, what are you going to do?" besides reflect, you know, right. are we going to check, check in on you again to see what kind of progress you've made in your thinking, or are you just going to think about it and then never do anything? Um, but also what does reflection even look like? What does reflection look like or feel like when you're actually doing it? Mm -hmm. Is it the same or different from sitting with some discomfort? I mean, I think that that's, that's part of the thing that needs to be figured out. 
Um, you know, again, sort of tapping into, as I always and often regularly all the time do, Toni Morrison, who, you know, we do language. That's what we do. That is the meaning of our lives and the measure of our lives. And so we have the capacity to really sort of figure out and, and, and mine these ideas of reflection and sitting in discomfort and broadening the way that we think about each other. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there are people out there who um, already sit with their discomfort and they're waiting for um, instructions on the next steps, being the best anti-racist they could possibly be, being the best ally they could possibly be. Um, is there something you could recommend, something you think would be helpful, something you've seen in action that you thought, hey, that's a really good thing to do? I can tell you what not to do. Um, and that is don't tell me about it. Because if it, it's actually working, if you are effectively anti-racist, you don't have to tell me about it. And you don't have to ask me what to do next. Um, you know, that's that I think is speaks very directly to sort of white privilege and all these other sort of catchphrases that we have, which is that, well, I did the reading, I did the work. Now what do I do? Right. But if you've actually internalized, and that's the key word, right? Internalized. If you have internalized that, then you've changed your approach. You have literally changed your approach and how you hear things, how you talk to people. But the difficult thing about that is we've lived with 400 years of a particular kind of internalized thinking. And so it's not just changing the way that you think, it's actually excavating the way that you've been thinking. I want to ask you some questions from the audience in just a little bit. Um, in fact, why don't we go to them now? There, there's one from Robin who says, uh, what would you say to or how would you advise uh, young black women or children who are living in white New Hampshire communities now and, it, and experiencing microaggressions, being told, I don't see race, which is a form of erasure, and trying to function and feel a sense of belonging, agency, and personal power? Well, the first thing that I want to say about that is that it is not just erasure. It's actually a tool, a violent tool uh, of saying to someone, I will only accept who you are if I take away something about you that is integral to your identity. So people throw around the idea of erasure a lot or in colorblind casting, colorblind existence, so and so forth. That's not, uh, th that's not a, a, a passive thing that is an actual tool of saying to someone you're not valuable unless i don't see something that's integral to you so i would say the first thing to young black women and girls who are trying to erase your race and your identity and your blackness you just say F that really you you can't do that it, that is mine and it is so much a part of who i am um were you asking what white parents should say or what I... Robin's question was getting at, um, what advice do you have for young black women or children living in New Hampshire, experiencing microaggressions? To take your, your, your feedback literally, I mean, do you, do you want them to say F that and, and just... Or, or do you think maybe on a practical level, just staying away from that person is, is better? I don't, what would you say? I think you have to call it out. I think calling it out is what actually ultimately gives you agency. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean calling it out like popping somebody in the mouth. I mean, calling it out like what you just said is really offensive. And, you know, I know we're nine. I know we're 15. 
I know we're 20, whatever, whatever age it is, but I really have to tell you this because it's about my own well-being. And if you want to be in, in my, my sort of circle, then you need to know that. Mm-hmm. How do your, this is a question from an, from an audience member, uh, how do your white family members engage with you about contemporary racial issues uh, like the Black Lives Matter protests? Um, they don't. They don't. That, you know, I mean, that's the short answer. It has been a struggle. My mom and I have a very close relationship and have had hundreds of conversations about why it's important for her to think on a deeper level about race and my place in that framework of systemic racism and whatnot. But otherwise, it has not been fruitful. And so that's among the reasons that I wrote this book. Do you wish you could be able to, you could have more and better conversations with your family members about this kind of thing? Oh God, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not least of all, because I'm black, (laughs) but because it is what's happening in our country. It is what, what is truly the most important thing that is happening in our nation. uh, And in terms of, the viability, the safety, the creativity of this society, at the core of it is systemic racism and particularly anti-Black systemic racism. That's Rebecca Carroll speaking with me about her new memoir, Surviving the White Gaze, which was published this month. We spoke as part of Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. More after a break. This is NHPR. Welcome back. This is a special broadcast of Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. I'm Peter Biello. Let's get back to our conversation with Rebecca Carroll, cultural critic and author of the new memoir, Surviving the White Gaze. We have one question about uh, interracial adoption, and I had wanted to ask you something similar, so I'll just ask, is is there advice you would give to uh parents who plan on adopting a child of, of, of a different race. Is there uh, advice you can give these parents? When you have a Black child, you have a Black family. Um, and I say that as, you know, as someone who is married to a white man raising our son as Black and biracial. Um, it, it's not just about, again, the, 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 the one-off hair appointment or the poster of Serena Williams or um, the black doll or whatever it is, it has to be a constant engagement in a way that is not othering. That is not a black history month one-off. Um, you know, my son, when he was, I think eight or nine, maybe even younger, we had been visiting with my parents and I write about this in the book. And he, he, as we were leaving, he said, you know, is it weird to you or does it hurt your feelings, mom, that there isn't any black art or black music or, anything that indicates blackness in in the house where you grew up. And I was like, yeah, kind of, you know, because that wasn't, that didn't even occur to them. Whereas, you know, obviously in our home, there's blackness all around us. So I would say to white parents, you are not black. Your child is black. Your child is yours, but your child is also black and of black culture. And that means you have to know as much about parenting. Again, this is the default for a lot of white adoptive parents. The white gaze is, I know how to parent. Of course I can parent. 
as opposed to, I can parent, but I'm not sure I know how to parent a black child. So what does that mean? And what do I have to do to ensure that I raise a confident, healthy, smart, whole black person, black child, black person? Mm-hmm. And is it necessary to to move to a place where there are more people who look like the child around, or is it um, is it possible, maybe just more difficult in a in a uh, mostly white setting? I I think that that's a tough thing for me to answer because I don't know, and this is one of the reasons that I sort of keep a, a little bit of a remove from the adoption and interracial adoption community because. I don't know how people are making their families and I don't, you know, I don't, I'm sure it's case to case and I don't want to make blanket statements at all. And also I think it's nuts to raise a child in an all white world. I think it's absolutely nuts. That's my, (laughs) that's my personal opinion. Are there ways to make it work so that that child feels black? I don't know. I, I don't, no, that was not the case for me. But I, does it necessitate moving to a, 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 a more, I don't know if it necessitates it, but I think it's nuts not to. Mm, yeah. Uh, we get this related question from Emily in the audience who says, uh, does Ms. Carroll feel that it is possible for rural New Hampshire communities like Warner to do a better job at welcoming or including people of color? And if so, how? Um, that's not for me to work out. That is certainly for the white communities to work out. But I would say, you know, just sort of off top, I think what what I struggle with the most in terms of interracial adoption and white parents adopting black children is that the model in this country, historically, for the way in which white people engage with black people is not a good one. It is not a healthy one. It is not a, a equal one. Um, it is not a human, humanistic, humanitarian one. It is one of a power differential uh, so that it's either white savior, it is, it is condescension, it is um, I'm going to provide for you and give you a better life. I mean, that is what the country is founded on. So I need for I need for white people to work that part out first before I recommend the way in which white communities in rural New England towns can do a better job at embracing black people and people of color. Mm-hmm. I, I will say that that this question and, and one of my own questions, at least one of my own, uh, is is geared uh, comes from a place of of not not fully understanding uh, the the true pain of of racism and what it causes and and wanting very badly to understand and to say what can we what can we do what can society do as as uh, as as caring people if we are caring people how do we care for those of us who have been harmed by this um so i hope questions like like emily's and my own don't cause further harm i guess what i'm trying to say so this though this this speaks directly to this idea of sitting in the discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. So when you say, I don't understand the pain or I don't want to cause further harm, the, the remove from which you are saying that is in and of itself a function of racism, right? So if you can say, woof, 
what have I, what is what how am I complicit? What if I really looked at that? How would that make me feel? I bet you'd feel some pain. Mm -hmm. I bet you'd feel some sense of harm. So I think it's really important to keep in mind and think about the way in which you say, well, I know I'll never be able to understand. No, you certainly will not. But you may be able to understand if you allow yourself to sit in and or uh, interrogate any kind of role you might have played in that harm. Mm -hmm. One of the big things that, one of the big differences, I think, from, from what you've experienced is like no one has ever told me when I was in school, for example, that I'm pretty handsome for a white guy. You know, like I've never, I didn't internalize that early in my life the way, the way you did. So my job would be then to not ask you about it, but to just think about what that might feel and use, use my brain essentially to figure out what it would be like to, to not have to put someone through that, you know, or is that, is that kind of what you're getting at? It's kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah. And I, I, I think, you know, as you were saying that, it's like, I, I welcome, I welcome questions. I welcome curiosity. I welcome engagement always. That is what, mm. you know, a, a central part of my life is conversation, but I think it can be both, right? It can be you asking from a place of, 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 you know, genuine curiosity. And also, and this gets us back to that point of reflection, right? What is that going to, what is a reflection going to look like for you? Is it going to be, is it going to be a follow-up question of, well, that must've really sucked? Or is it going to be, whew, what is it going to be? And how is it going to change the way you think? And, and what is it going to, what, it, what of that will you bring to the next conversation you have with someone who looks like me? Do you think since uh, the murder of George Floyd, that the tenor of the conversation is changed or is it pretty no. much the same? It's not the same, but it's not nuanced. It's a, uh, it's a rise. It's an ebb, but it's, you know, I mean, what were the conversations we were having when Emmett Till was killed? What were the conversations we were have having, you know, when, when, Mike Fer Michael Ferguson, Mike Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson. I mean, th that's even just like a huge span of, of history. All of the the lynching and the and the violence and and of black bodies that has happened and continues to happen. Does it change the te tenor of the conversation? You know, I, I I say this a lot. I don't traffic in hope. You know, I I I really take one conversation. Um, to the next, to the next, to the next. And I, and I, and I want to make a better place for my son, but I don't want to use George Floyd as a marker. I don't want to use Emmett Till as a marker. I don't want to use all of these egregiously violent deaths, um, Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. I, I don't want to use them as markers. I want people to take in and grieve and then keep it pushing. Let's try to keep it pushing. Mm-hmm. You said that there's an ebb to this. Uh, is that to say that you feel like after a while people are going to stop talking about this in the way that they've been talking about it and then another horrible thing is going to happen and we'll start talking about it again? Peter, I try not to be cynical. I really try not to be cynical. Um, but, you know, I'm 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 a big, big girl now. I've lived some time and I've seen some some ebbs and flows. And, you know, it's all I can do is what I do. 
which is to continue to raise awareness and to put uh, to amplify voices and to tell stories and to be a good mother and to be a good partner and a good friend and to um, and and to to really trust my own agency and that is what this book is right is that I came to a place where I felt whole and certain of my voice and what I can put into the world as a black woman um, and that's all all I can do. Is there a favorite passage of your book? I know you're not going to read tonight, but we can direct people to that passage. Oh, I, there's a couple. Um, but I, I think uh, of two passages. One um, with my dear friend, Corinne, when we had just moved to New York and I was in a really tough spot. Um, and she just sort of saw me and lifted me. Um, and then another with a, a, another close girlfriend of mine, Monique, who also was was there at a central moment for me and and lifted me in another way. And, you know, I, I think I love the parts where I write about my son toward the end. Um, I think I feel a real fondness towards the the early, early stuff about life on, on Pumpkin Hill, which was absolutely a beautiful experience. Um, but but those two passages of my two girlfriends um, come to mind. You've worked in radio, you've worked in the publishing world. Um, with respect to racism and in the workplace, have things changed over time from the time you started to now? Are they, are they getting better in any meaningful way? Are they not? What do you think? I think that people so desperately, and, and, and no disrespect, but white people particularly, desperately want what black folks to say, yes, it's better. We'll let you know, you know what I mean? Like it, it, it's, it's better, better by, by what? Better that, that there have been lots of promotions uh, or hires of, of black and brown people in the last five months or a year. Okay, if, if you need that, then, then you can have that. But we will let you know, rest assured, when things are better. I did want to circle back to um, a question about your your ad adapting this memoir for television. Mm -hmm. um, what's what's your role in that? Are you writing the script? And I you, I know I think you were executive producer, right? Yeah, you writing know? and executive producing. Yeah, writing the script. How's that? Um, it, how's that going? Yeah. Oh no. No. <laughs> I haven't started. <laughs> no. Part of the deal was I want I want for the book to live in the world. Um, and it just came out today. So I want the book to live in the world before I start to think about how or what I'm going to adapt. Because as there, as you know, because you've read the book, there are a lot of different threads. There are a lot of different eras. There are a lot of different ways this could go. And my sort of like very, very lofty idea is or model is uh, I May Destroy You by uh, Michaela Cole, which I think is one of truly one of the most beautiful pieces of television art that I've seen. And I don't even know how long, but it's going to be a limited TV series. Um, and uh, and I'll keep you posted. OK. W do you have a deadline for, for when you have to deliver a script? We're, I'm sure people are curious about when they might be able to <laughs> see it on TV. <laughs> <laughs> I know you just finished this book, but no, get to writing. <laughs> I don't. I don't have a deadline. Um, but soon, soon, soon. And uh, finally, I wanted to ask you um, a question about how you feel about New Hampshire, the place you grew up. Um, how do you mm. feel about it now? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because I, you know, I've had so much animosity about it, so much anger um, about it. 
Um, but you know, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful place. Uh, not, and I don't mean that in terms of y'all's politics and whatnot, which is a different conversation, but in terms of the natural world and the landscape, you know, of course it's beautiful. And, you know, when my son was really small, we, we made regular trips um, and I thought it was really important for him to, to have access to fishing and, and catching frogs and all the rest of it. Um, I'm coming around to resenting it less. <laughs> Let me say that. Um, and, you know, like it does pull at my heartstrings a little bit to, to, to be doing this with you and to think about the music hall, uh, which I write about in the book um, in Portsmouth, um, which is, was so in integral to my, to my sort of adolescence and formative years. And so I would say I'm coming around to, to feeling less animosity about it. Well, we hope that you come back when you have um, another book tour in person post-pandemic. I would love that. <laughs> I would love that. Thank Re you so much for having me. Rebecca Carroll, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for being here. Likewise. That was Rebecca Carroll, cultural critic and author of the new memoir, Surviving the White Gaze. We spoke as part of our series, Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Since the COVID-19 pandemic, we've moved these conversations with contemporary writers and thinkers to a virtual stage, so you can now enjoy the series from the comfort of your own home. And we've got two more such conversations in the coming weeks. I'll be speaking with former NPR host Diane Rehm on Tuesday, February 23rd, about her new book of interviews, When My Time Comes, which examines all sides of the medical aid in dying movement. Then on Tuesday, March 2nd, I'll speak with New York Times columnist Paul Krugman about his new book, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. Tickets are five bucks, and you can get yours at themusichall.org. The Music Hall's executive producer is Tina Sautel, and HPR's president is Jim Schachter. The Music Hall director of programming is Therese Lagama. The Music Hall director of communications and community engagement is Monty Bohannon. And HPR's producer of Writers on a New England Stage is Sarah Plourd. And the Music Hall literary producer is Brittany Wasson. Music in this broadcast by Little Glass Men. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you very much for joining us for Writers on a New England Stage. <laughs>